Thanks for stopping by. I'm Corey Edwards, writer, director, comedian, people watcher. Yeah, but not like a freak. I'm not like walking around with binoculars past people's houses. I'm just saying I'm a people watcher. I'm a lover of people, of behavior. I think that when you're um, a creator, um, especially when you're a comedian, you are observing all the time. I think that um, people say, where do you get your ideas? Where? How do you write your jokes, Corey? Um, it's really more about just having an antenna up that picks up stuff that we're all looking at. We're all looking at stuff. I'm, I'm just looking at people. That's what I'm saying. Like, um, uh, this occurred to me because I'm recording this, uh, uh, here's a little inside. Here's a little BTS on, uh, the thanks for stopping by podcast. There are many places that are good to record. One of them is my car because it is a soundproof booth that goes anywhere. And I'm sitting here in my car, um, and I just, right before I'm recording, there's a guy across the parking lot. This is not a very busy place, and he is on the phone, and he is pacing up and down. He's got a backpack on, he, and he is gesturing wildly. He is, he is not on a phone call that is just like, okay, I'll pick up uh, some milk and some oatmeal on the way home. Uh, okay, bye, honey. I love you. This is something adversarial. This guy is pacing back and forth. He's about 100 yards away from me. But he is gesturing wildly to whoever's on that phone. Something is going down. He is... The the, the fist is going up occasionally. Uh, he is pointing in the air. And uh, that's what a storyteller does. Is They, they just see somebody in life and they go, what, what's going on there? Um, um, here's the strangest one I ever saw. I'm, I'm driving down the road... Um, and this was in a suburban area, not a lot of houses around, but it was just like right around the corner from some neighborhoods. Uh, and there is a long stretch of road. It's not a sidewalk road. It's a long stretch of road, no sidewalk, mostly just traffic. And this young woman, I'd say she's about 25. Um, she is walking down the road all by herself. She has no, no bags, no suitcase, no backpack, just just average looking, uh, decently dressed woman, jeans and a t-shirt. And she is walking down the side of the road and she's her hand held high with her middle finger up. And she's not screaming. She's not shouting. She's got a look on her face. Like I've had it. I mean, she has a look on her face like you would have if you wanted to give someone the finger, but she's not giving anyone specifically the finger. She is holding her hand high as if she is the statue of Liberty, but her torch is a middle finger. And she is walking down the road like she is a one-woman parade with that middle finger. She's not looking at any cars. She's not looking at any people. She's just walking, eyes front, face determined, middle finger up in the air. I pass her in my car and I'm like, what is the story here? I mean, you gotta wonder. A hundred people passing her that day will never know what her deal is. What is her story? Where did she just come from? Where, what is her mindset? What is the life change she is making right now? Or what is she about to go do to someone? I don't know. But I literally, I can't, I can't keep driving. I stop, I pull over, I turn around, and I just watch her in my rearview mirror for, for a minute. Uh, so I guess I don't turn around. I just, I just stop the car. And she just keeps walking. 
I mean, I watch her for five, six minutes. She, she doesn't put her arm down. She walks into the distance, middle finger held high. This is her message to the world, I guess. And then she turns a corner and goes down another long road that's kind of headed towards some some houses, some some neighborhood or something. But it's another long stretch of road and, and she disappears around the corner. And then I think, nah, she's not still doing it. She was just doing it for like kind of the main the main drag here. But I, so I turn my car around and I drive up to the corner just a little bit. This is me. I got to watch people, right? And I look around the corner. I look to my left. She's already down the road, like several blocks. Still going. Still middle finger held high. Still walking. So, I mean, I watched her till I couldn't see her anymore. Um, she was committed to whatever whatever statement she was making. She was committed. But again, nothing written on her t-shirt. No, no, no sign. No protest. Just a woman in her middle finger, just off walking down the street, proclaiming that she had had enough. And uh, to this day, I almost, I almost thought, thought, you know, maybe I'd drive up and say, hey, are you okay? What's going on? But then I was like, on the other hand, I'm a social coward. And I'm like, no, no, I don't think she wants to talk to anybody right now. Um, I bet my wife would have, would have driven up and talked to her and had an amazing experience uh, finding out what was going on underneath underneath the surface of this uh, this woman this woman's face, um, but I was too much of a coward. She kind of scared me, and she looked like she did not want to talk. But but I so to this day I won't know what was going on with her. But you never know. That's part of people watching. Is that um, uh, the bad side of people watching? Is that you can judge what's going on. You're like, oh, this guy, this guy over here, <laughs> looks like he's in trouble. Uh, looks like his wife is yelling at him on the phone. Or oh, looks like these two kids are up to no good. Like, but but we don't know. The other, the good side of people watching is to say, I wonder, and I don't know, and I have no idea what they're going through. Um, it is amazing though that I that was probably ten years ago. I will never forget that woman. And I will never know why she did what she did. Um, anyway, so so we can create narratives in our mind. I think as human beings, we create narratives. We crave a story, even for our day. I'm waking up. What's my story today? I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. I've got a, a dentist appointment. And then i got to go make that phone call I don't want to make. Uh, oh, yeah. And then i got to go uh, do that errand. Um, yeah. And i got to go to the bank. Like suddenly, that is a narrative. Our to-do list. Or what our kids have to accomplish this semester, that is a narrative. That is a story. The story begins in September and it ends in December at the uh, Christmas break. That is a story from beginning, middle, and end. We think in stories. Uh, We talked a lot to uh, uh, Sean Gaffney last week, my guest, about how we think in stories. But then here's what's interesting. I have a guest this week uh, who is deeply immersed in the gaming industry. And I wanted to talk to him because I don't know a whole lot about the gaming industry. I am not a gamer. My kids are way deep into gaming. My kids are eyeballs deep in gaming. And they think in terms of games. They do sometimes think in terms of stories like movies and TV shows. But they are gamers. And that is a different kind of narrative. Um, Zelda uh, Breath of the Wild is not a story. I mean, there's lore. I watched my son Nate play it. But it is more like uh, Minecraft. It is more... It's it's. I mean, there are other accomplishments, there are other goals to achieve, but 
it's like, here's this area for you to go and play in and to wander in. And here are some goals you can accomplish. Here are some areas you can go or not go. Oh, here's a monster that you can fight or you can run away from. Here's a horse you can ride. You know, it's like, it's, it's not like once upon a time, there was a, a young man named Link and he has to accomplish this thing. And for some reason, I'm driven to narratives that, yeah, they close up at the end. Like if, if, if this character doesn't do A, B, and C, D will happen and D is bad. Um, but the gaming industry, it is more like there are cinematics that take you. There are stories that take you. Uh, so there, I guess we'll talk to, uh, Jason about this, but there are story-based games. And then there are just like games where you just explore. And I, I hope I even know enough to ask him questions because I'm the kind of guy that'll be like, so, uh, what's been happening in gaming since Atari and the single joystick? Walk me through that. Walk me through beat by beat. Do we still put quarters in our home systems? Is that how games work still? Do you still need the quarters? Like, that's how far detached I am, but I'm fascinated. Um, uh, my wife and I had a chance to work as writers on a VR project. It did not go forward, but that was an interesting conversation about, this is not Once Upon a Time, A, B, C, D, Act 1, Act 2, Act 3. Um, this is, uh, we're, we're going to it was a music-based project, but then, then we had to talk about like, when do you let the audience choose what they're looking at? You put on these, these goggles or the helmet or whatever, and you're in a space and there's this new phrase, like, are you on the rails? Or are you off the rails? And on the rails is like, you're in a roller coaster and the game or the experience is moving you forward in space. You can take your head and look around, but the narrative or the, or the experience is being driven by, by the system. And then if you're off the rails, well, then you just wander around like Breath of the Wild. Uh, you go down an alley, you look around a corner, uh, maybe a lighting cue comes up and that allows you to turn your head. Um, so I'm still getting used to that kind of narrative. Whereas a book or a film or a TV show, I like, I like as a creator taking an audience a specific place. And as an audience, I still like just sitting down and going, okay, I'm in your hands, you take me forward. You take me to the next step. Um, but sometimes life isn't like that. Sometimes life is like, a, you know, just an open game where you are just wandering around and you choose your own adventure. Um, this guy that I was observing at the beginning of this segment, he's now sitting on the curb. He's like 10 feet from me. And he this conversation is going to keep going. And he is now, uh, uh, he's not as agitated but now it looks like he is uh, having a deeper conversation. And I, I don't know what that is, but that's, that's part of the uh, game cinematic that I am watching right now. That's part of the open world I'm walking around in. Um, and I think that people, uh, people watchers, maybe, maybe as a people watcher, I would like some uh, a game where I can pick and choose where I go and what I do. Um, but how those games are made is also a mystery to me. So we're going to talk about that this week uh, in a different kind of narrative. Um, let's move on with the show and with our guest. Oh, yes, it's back. You thought it was gone, but the segment you all love and you've been waiting for. What, what do, do the, the boys think? think? That's right. What do the boys think? What do my two boys, Elliot and Nate, think? Elliot? I, I don't know. I Nate? Pineapple. Yeah. Well, that's what's in their heads right now. Uh, hey, Nate, did you know that I learned what the little spikes all over a pineapple are called? 
They're called pineapples. Okay, and uh, that's an original joke that I made up just for my two boys. All by your own. All by my own, all myself. By, all by yourself. So uh, I've been talking a lot about gaming. Gamers to, uh, this week. Gamer. Alpha yeah. gamer. Uh, you guys are gamers, right? I'm a gamer. I'm a certified gamer. Are you guys going to uh, grow up uh, to invent your own games and start your own game company? Uh, yeah, I'm thinking of doing that. I think we talked about this in an earlier podcast. Oh, so yes. if you haven't seen it, like... Go oh, f- the fans side. of the show, they know. They know what you guys are up to. Long-time viewers of this show will know. But I wanted to talk about... What do you prefer more? Indie games? You guys are big on indie games, right? Yes. Indie yes. games. They're big fans. Versus what? Uh, I guess developer games or like the same way there's like the big companies like Disney and Universal and the film yeah, industry. Yeah. There's also like the huge big uh, Nintendo. And yeah, there's Nintendo, there's Xbox, PlayStation, which aren't like really developers. Those are more consoles. But like you got Devol- Devolver Digital is more borderline between indie and uh, other mm. stuff. But I think the big difference is like corporate companies. Yeah. And personal like singular developers and sometimes it's a group of people but it's usually smaller you can tell the difference between the bigger companies and the smaller companies oh yeah yeah but you guys you really gravitate towards who's the guy that invented undertale oh toby fox Fox. oh toby Fox. he's like your hero he's amazing he's such a great cool guy why is that because he invented a game called undertale uh he he was like one of the three people who worked on it and it is now one of the most popular indie games of all time. And it's just got great writing, great characters. He coded basically the entire thing himself. You guys kind of got obsessed with it for a while. Like the music. Yes. Like you got the music soundtrack, right? He's, he composed the whole game and he is oh so good. And what was his follow up so, what was his follow up game? Um, Deltarune, which is just as if not actually probably definitely better than Undertale, in my opinion. I would agree. Yeah. That was quite a sentence. All, all, all you Undertale fans, Listening suck to a lemon. <laughs> suck a lemon. Well, who are you, the little rascals? Ah, go suck a lemon and sit on an egg. Um, <laughs> that's an old reference. There's a hundred-year-old reference for you. What are you guys, Laurel and Hardy? Um, yes. So, But you like both of them, like. Right? You like indie games, oh, yeah. but you also love the big games. I don't even know if I would like say I prefer indie games because they're both great, but I think that what I would definitely say is I would rather have all video games be indie games than all video games be the corporate. If you had to choose. If I had to choose. Oh. Because the big difference is the same difference between every indie thing uh, that exists in a world of big businesses. Mm. And it's that the big businesses are out for what's going to be the most popular based on the numbers, what's going to make them the most money, what's going to be the sequel to this next game. So many big businesses in the gaming industry are focused on uh, riding on success that they already have, even more than the uh, film industry, because films have sequels and and sequels of their sequels and prequels, but video games go way beyond that. Uh, there's some companies that are famous for specifically saying that they're not going to make uh, too many sequels, like a company called, still technically kind of like a, a bigger business, but they're called Valve, and oh, they have decided wow. that they will never make uh, more than like three games of their series, or two games of their series. Two games. Two games of their series. So it's become that big of a problem. Uh, Sakurai, creator of Smash Bros, and also creator of Kirby, uh, funny enough, he was super against this kind of... Uh, that's not a company, that is a person. That's a person, Sakurai. So guy, he worked at Nintendo, uh, HAL Laboratory, actually, before that. But he believed, like, 
that, that kind of behavior of making game after game after game that's basically the same thing but with better graphics, he thought that was terrible. He completely voted against that, and that's why he left HAL Laboratory that worked on Kirby. Mm. Um, so it's, it's stuff like that that like, is really what runs the corporate side of the gaming industry. Yeah. And I think where indie games are really cool is that you get a little bit of new something with every indie game. It's always like trying something new. What if we did this? So many indie games like uh, Baba is You... Um, there's others I can name, but that's the one that really comes to mind. Uh, they really play with mechanics in games, whereas 2D platformer, 3D platformer, fighting game, they all, like, repeat themselves over and over again, because that's the formula that works. Yeah. But you can't find this new thing that you love if you don't try it, if you don't create it. What do you guys prefer? Uh, there are, there are fighting games or, or combat kind of games... I'm getting really broad here. And then there are, what do you guys call them? Survival games, sandbox games, open world games. Yeah. Open world games is like a really broad term for that. Yeah, that's yeah. good. Like you're wandering around. Like, yeah. Like Nate, you are, uh, well, both of you guys love Breath of the Wild. We've oh, talked I love about Breath that. of the Wild. Yes. Um, so now that you've talked about how much you love indie games, uh, Zelda, uh, they announced a new game and you guys were losing your mind last week. So, Can you tell me about that? So, yeah. um, they didn't announce a new game, but they had a big new trailer with big, uh, like, reveals. And this say. is for, for what game? Uh, The Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom. Tears of the Kingdom. It's a sequel game to Breath of the Wild. I think the reason we found Tears that- of the Breath of the Wild Kingdom. <laughs> I think that... I think that, uh... The Curse of the Black Pearl. That's, that's... That's no, I got it. Not. Tears of the Kingdom. <laughs> Why were you guys so excited? What things were revealed that are coming soon? Well, they're, they're really vague about it. There's like just images of cave paintings or... Oh, it sounds uh, like a, a teaser. Cave, yeah, you keep it vague, is. but keep everybody excited. Oh, yeah. They're, they're, they're super vague. We have no idea what's going on. But you guys were running in and out of rooms. Like, yeah. you were running to... Like, I was like, do your homework! And you were like, no, but we have to talk about this. What was it that made you so excited? Uh, just some key just things. Just some new imagery that we'd never seen before. Uh, some new mechanics that looked pretty interesting. Uh, they showed us like the world map for the first time. Does uh, it does it feel like it is part of the same game universe as Breath of the Wild? Oh yes, they styled like everything yeah. basically the same. Same look. Yeah, like everything looks the same except with new stuff in it, which is cool. What would you do if somebody took over like an indie game like um, like Undertale? And they suddenly blew it up with like a hundred million dollars, three hundred million dollars, whatever it takes, and they made it like look like a three D world. Like it would just ruin it for you, though, wouldn't it? It would. Some of the style of Undertale is that like it's all just Toby just doing whatever he wants with the game. Uh, but you know, I was gonna say that like sometimes indie games can get sort of out of hand when it comes to popularity. Huh. Because Undertale is an excellent uh, example. There's other games like this, like uh, FNAF, uh, Five Nights at Freddy's, uh, not my favorite oh. game, um, that like when they get a certain amount of popularity, the fandom is such like a, you know, like cult fandoms for right. stuff. They, like, they feel like it's their their product when it's an indie game because it's more like personal at that point. Like you've, it's more like you've, you've discovered, discovered it. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Sorry. Uh, no, 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 yeah, that's, that's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah. Um, so the, it gets a little out of hand when there's enough of that because then, like, the fandom starts to become toxic and make their own, like, fan fiction stuff off of it. So I think that Undertale is a really good example of that. So in that way, indie games can get kind of... Well, you don't feel not. like uh, big games like Nintendo games 
fall prey to fans going crazy a little bit? Well, they like people have made like little art for it and stuff, but it's never gotten to that point. It's I, almost like it's too big. Yeah, it's like, it's like taking shots at Disney. Like, yeah, sure, yeah, yeah. But but Del, but uh, Delta Rune or 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 Undertale feels like the work of one or two people, so you feel Literally more personally is, yeah. connected to like hoping they do or don't do something with the game. Yeah. Do you so? Do you follow what Toby Fox is doing next? I mean, is he? Oh yeah, you just watching the next thing he makes. Thing that got me really excited recently is that the Undertale uh, anniversary just happened a couple days ago, I guess. Oh. Um, and for that, he Toby usually does something, and uh, this year he gave us a huge update on what he's doing working on Deltarune, and also like a whole. ARG, uh, augmented reality game. Oh, yeah. Uh, where it's like this website based on one of the characters where there's a bunch of lore and a bunch of secrets and some cool new assets that we've never seen. So, all about Spamton, who was fa- favorite character. Oh, my gosh. Character. I've heard a lot about Spamton. Well, so, so do you guys, do, do you guys prefer a game that is like an open world kind of, um, Breath of the Wild kind of exploring game? Or I know that Undertale and some indie games, you really get, um, Hook to the story. Well, it's funny that you say that because, like, what if I asked you, uh, do you prefer more the Marvel shoot 'em up, uh, catchphrases, uh, action movie style movie, or do you prefer more of the thought provoking, philosophical, like, interesting, really gets into a concept uh, kind of movie? Yeah. Like, so you're you saying can... there's room for both of them? Yeah. So, like, some in some areas, story is like whoa it's so cool because you can like build off of that you can expect more in later titles but then like in terms of gameplay and stuff yeah it's it's really cool to run around in like a huge open world yeah i I suppose it's not fair to say which do you prefer because like i think uh the internet always comes up with lists or this or that and like you don't have to you don't have to love just one it's great to have both of those flavors the 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 big the big games and the indie world right yeah like, what would you hope for your game company someday? Would you always want to keep it small, or do you hope to someday be a giant game brand? I think I'd want to be a big indie brand where it's not like I'm like as big as Nintendo or working for Nintendo. I don't, I don't want to do that. I just want people to recognize like the name. Yeah. You know? Okay. That sounds cool. All right, well... um, I hope you guys keep creating. Uh, you you seem to think in terms of games more than um, movies or shows. Although you're you're still obsessed with kind of like in pitching a show, and I still TV like shows, cartoons and, a little too much. Yeah, you kind of jump between both narrative yeah. styles, don't yeah, you? I do. Well, you're young. I am. You can do whatever you want. You don't have to pick one. Uh, but I find I, I don't I don't think about games at all, and you guys yeah. are always thinking about games. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I guess it all just kind of depends on like what you're around all the time what is the worst i've ever done in a game that you guys have observed mario kart mario kart or any of the uh any of the those little mini games i i i think uh super smash bros yeah yeah too, that one was a little too, too many too many buttons yeah i probably died in five seconds but like you and mom both kind of like didn't get that one like mario kart was like but mom wants to learn she's competitive and i just i just there's something in me in video games i just give up and i drive that go-kart right off into the abyss what what do you say i'm telling you you gotta play breath of the wild i think that you would get into more story-based games because like you're more into the narrative i should play breath of the wild with you you guys okay all right well that's all the time we have today for 
What do the boys But that sounded like a car horn. Well, in the world of gaming, I'm a scared little boy in a big dark woods, but here to help me understand the differences between games and everything else uh, in narrative uh, film and television is a game designer, Jason Richardson. Welcome to the show. Hi, Corey. Thank you. Uh, Jason and I got to know each other in Montreal, and now we're both scattered to different locations. Where am I, where am I calling you again? I live in Huntsville, Alabama right now. That's great. That the gaming center of the world, right? <laughs> yeah, the one and only. Uh, so tell me specifically, you work at, uh, tell me the company again. Funcom. And, and what people might know more is uh, the game that you are, uh, have just released. Is that correct? No, it was just announced, actually. Just recently, we announced our survival MMO set in the universe of Herbert's Dune. Wow. Wow. I've heard of that. You might. Yeah. So, so you have, and how long have you been working on this as designer of this game? A little over two years now. Do you just come home some days saying, if I see one more sandworm, I'm going to kill myself? Usually the sandworms do the trick for me. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, and was this, is this in complete connection with the feature film or is this separate? Um, sort of in between. We do work with Legendary because they have the creative rights to the IP and they do quite a bit of approvals for us, but we also have a lot of freedom. Things don't have to look exactly like the film. Yeah. What I had seen that you guys have already released was pretty amazing. I mean, it was, uh, I don't know if it's just for promotion or if it's going to be part of a cinematic, but man, it was a uh, photo reel. Yeah, it was a cinematic trailer. It was a beautiful kind of continuous shot that showed a lot of uh, kind of the, the central character and also the environment. And then it, the camera does this crazy move. And, and then you're allowed to kind of like run with him as he jumps onto that sandworm. Pretty exhilarating. Is the release imminent or is this like, well, we got six more months to go. Uh, this was just a tease. No, we do have months to go. Probably look Look for an announcement somewhere next year. So as a, as a game designer, what, that, that's, a, that's a big, big term. I'm sure that can, can mean a lot of things to people listening. What, what, what is kind of the major focus of your job or does it change throughout the project? It does. It changes throughout career and project, really. I work with a distributed team. Um, in about seven different locations, many of which are in Europe, a uh, couple people in Canada, and my office that's in North Carolina. Wow. And with all these teams, did you, with this Dune project, did you start with um, a narrative or a goal or kind of a focus that someone, uh, a client gave you or a, another group of producers? Or were you guys just starting with Dune? What would that game be? On the Funcom level, we were starting with Dune. Yes, so yes, the game concept started at Funcom. The design is being driven out of Funcom. Now, Funcom has a history in what we call open world survival games. So 
our past talent and our past success drove the concept for our treatment of Dune, which is a a large multiplayer survival game based in the Dune universe. So is this the planet of Arrakis where we are located and we're just kind of looking for different goals and, and things we can find uh, around the planet? Yes. So everyone plays on Arrakis. The players will be discovering how to survive on the harshest desert planet in the galaxy and not only survive, but how to make a home for themselves, to make allies and friends and looking to the future, starting wars, fighting over spice. Oh, the spice. That doggone spice. It always seems to cause problems. Well, how long was this process uh, from the very start? Have you been working on this for a couple of years? The project was in a conceptual phase before I started, and I've been working on it for a couple of years. So this project is about three and a half years old. Most projects of this size probably do have a lifespan of at least, I mean, a development span of at least five years. Wow. And you have always been kind of a world builder. I, just to give some people some background, uh, you, you and your wife got married in kind of a Lord of the Rings wedding. Is that right? Yeah, we did. It's one of the things that drew us together was our mutual love for fantasy. And we wanted a, fan, a medieval fantasy wedding. So it was it was a bit warm in Alabama, but it was one of a kind. Yeah. Were there swords involved? You guys like carried swords or the I, I, explain a little bit uh, what was the atmosphere for a Lord of the Rings or a fantasy style wedding? Only the wedding party was in co- needed to be in costume, and some of the guests chose to come. And yes, we did borrow swords for the whole wedding party. And yes, it was mock sword play. And yes, someone did get hurt. <laughs> it's not a party until someone stabs someone else with a sword. Yes, true. Uh, and what? And and just in your uh, own personal life and your creative life, I know you've been working on some books. And these have been kind of like many years in the making kind of uh, pursuits for you. It's true. For about 15 years, I have had a short series, probably trilogy of books in mind. And I've been working on improving my writing ability, becoming a professional author in my free time. Of course, I'm not quite there because I'm not published, but I do have two books in still looking for an agent. So I I tell a lot of writers, uh, whether it is professional or whether you're at a publisher, if you're writing, you're a writer. Um, Would you say that that has fueled what you do for a living or is that more of an outlet like, oh, I get to go home and kind of do something I'm in complete control of? It's more of an outlet, but it's very related. My personal dream for both of these fields is to create other worlds to uh to give people somewhere to escape into and imagine being in a place that you couldn't really be otherwise and in games i have the ability to collaborate with other developers and create something very visual something interactive something very immersive but with writing i have the ability to craft that whole world myself yeah well, and how did you get into this profession? Did you start from the coding or the technical aspects of this at all? Do you code at all? Or were, did you come at it from another um, discipline? 
Yeah, I started my career as a programmer. I was actually a programmer in high school and working on my own graphics engines. And then out of college with a CS degree, I started as a programmer in the games industry and was a programmer with as much design as I could manage for several years. And what, what was the big shift for you to, from going from the coding, uh, the programming side to the designing side? Was there just somebody that took a chance on you or did you do something on your own that, that kind of proved that you were going to make that shift to your employer? Well, design was actually what I always wanted to do. So at every job, I always took whatever opportunity I could to be involved in design, to do creative projects with programming. And when I took a job with BioWare, I asked to be officially on the design team, which for about a year they went along with until they decided that I was in too many meetings across different departments and then told me that I could have my choice of one job or the other. So I became designer officially at that point. Wow. It was like you leaped across the great divide there. Yep. yep. It's actually not uncommon. It's it's definitely not uncommon for designers to come from some other field. That's great that they're open, that, that this industry is open to that. A lot of industries, you will get pigeonholed. You know, it's it's hard for like in the animation industry for someone to be purely on the side of like rigging or a technical position and then to get into like, uh, you know what I want to do? I want to be a lighting designer. And, and it just really takes, you got to jump through a lot of hoops. Designers... There is no, there is no established path to design. Like designers are people who have, in the, who just have a good gut for what is fun in a game, and that can come from any background. So I think, I think it's just become the established pattern that designers usually start in some other field. That's interesting. So if there was a young person out there listening who wants to do what you do, it's not like go to school for game design. It's more like just get in where you can get in or what, what would be your advice? You can do all of the above. There are colleges that have game design degrees now. However, many companies appreciate a game designer with a nicely rounded background. Uh, programming in particular, I think, makes for a strong game designer so you might actually have more job opportunities throughout your career if you started as a programmer or as some other field than just a degree in game design do you have other uh, interests you have pulled in like do you have stacks of books about architecture or or places cult, different cultures in the world like i know that you're relying on artists but you are also you're going hey what if we did this do you need some kind of, are you enjoying that you're pulling on a background of maybe your knowledge of fantasy or even your knowledge of history uh, to build ideas like this? Well, I mean, working on Herbert's Dune, obviously there's a, a large suite of novels to draw on in the first place, some of which are more canonical than others, but everyone on the design team has read multiple of the novels. We do a tremendous amount of research online with anything that's ever been documented about the Dune universe. Our creative director has read the novels many times and has essentially written his own encyclopedia where he can look up data anywhere in the novels. Of course, now there are the movies. Um, I know we do some research on, uh, on cultures and let's say architectural styles that 
inspired the novels in the first place. Of course, most of us come from some game background where we have worked on a science fiction project before, so there's a lot of, uh, of general science fiction history with us as well. Do, do you have a favorite genre to work in? Like, do you go, oh, good. I, like, obviously you love fantasy, but uh, have you done stuff in, I don't know, apocalyptic stuff or? <laughs> well, I did work on Fallout, which is a post-apocalyptic science fiction. But I, I mean, science fiction and fantasy together in general are my favorites. And my career has mostly taken me through science fiction. Well, I know that most everybody probably listening has heard of fallout. Do you have any other um, big projects that you are pretty proud of? Like you, you kind of put them like a trophy on the, on the shelf. Like, wow, that was really cool to be a part of. Can you tell us some of those titles? I worked on Bioshock infinite and mass effect Andromeda and fallout 76, all of which were huge and terrific and not always received well by everyone. But in the end, I was very proud of all three of those. Those are almost, those are, I, I don't know if you use the term franchise, but those are just such big brands. Do you find, uh, I've talked a lot on this show about the pressures of fanboys, the pressures of a big brand or a franchise in the movie world. Do you feel that pressure? I, I, now you're on Dune. So do you feel that pressure of like fans going, they, they did this, they didn't do this or what they got right? Definitely. It's, it's a lot of pressure and it's, actually quite dangerous and difficult to manage it makes it difficult for a studio to branch out on an established formula like some of the some of the negative feedback that i've seen in the past came from taking something that had been done and then seeing how we could expand it and try new things and the fan and fans don't always like that they sometimes wish that you would just buckle down on the things that you've done in the past and, and that's fine too Sometimes they, they, you just can't everyone. yeah it's hard when it's like well we want something different and fresh and new but don't change too much or we'll get angry about that too yep my perception of gaming is that i mean i know that a lot of games have stories that thread you along but there's an immense amount of choice in a game so do you find like you go home and you work on your book and that is like exactly what you want to happen from beat to beat to beat and then you go uh to work and it's like well we're going to give like how much narrative do you even input into a game or does it is it all dependent on the game it does depend a lot on the game i mean there are games that have been made that are interactive stories where it's mostly cinematics and the player makes a choice and then it branches into another cinematic then there are other games that have zero cinematics at all and it's a sandbox and the players have full expression if not you know if not a lot of visual quality it's you know there's a lot of expression through fun and like inter often interaction with other players i've worked on some of a pretty good range between those two i despite being an author in my free time i've never worked as a writer in my career so i haven't I haven't done a lot personally with the narrative in video games, but I certainly have worked with the writers, the video game writers who do. My that's job is game designer. That's interesting because in my mind, when you say you're a game designer, I keep thinking that's designing everything as far as the experience. But is it more like, it sounds like the writers and the narrative is a different component that you work with and you are more building the world. 
Is that correct? Yeah. Well, it's, I build the world. I build what you can do in the world. I build like the, the things that the players can make an identity out of. Like if it's a role-playing game, you know, are you a player that specializes in, let's say, weapons? Or are you a player that specializes in magic? You know, or are you a player that specializes in building? I've uh, built superpowers before. I've built guns. I've built artificial intelligence. It's really quite the gamut. Wow. Yeah, I guess it depends on the sandbox you're put in. And do you find that, are you, are uh, is it a give and take between you and the writers? Or... Uh, do the writers come in and go, oh, you've invented this thing. We need to write a, some lore around that. I mean, is it is it back and forth between you guys or who drives who? When communication is working at its best, it should be back and forth. Like, ideally, the writers have established a framework in which the game designers can operate. And we know what our intellectual property is, like what the what the flavor and framing of the world is. And we the things that we design fit within that. But sometimes we design something that becomes uh, part of the narrative. I mean, on Mass Effect Andromeda, I added a, a player ability that summons a robot, and the writing team loved it and wrote the robot into their story. Oh, that's great. That's great. Um, do you see a trend? I, I'm sure you, you've worked for so long in this, in this arena what is the trend? Uh, are, are games in general leaning one way or another? Do you see something going a, a certain way in gaming? If you're talking about between narrative and sandbox, I, I don't think so. I see, I see it being pushed in both directions. Right now, I mean, this is a slanted point of view because this is where I work. Right now, I see a lot of games in this on the sandbox side the su recent success of minecraft and i mean that's not reason at all but the success of minecraft but and other survival games and just the general open world creating cr creation genre seems to be driving a lot of work there but it certainly isn't hampering the production of games that have a strong narrative bent as well do you see any uh, uh trends in, in how games are looking i've Games look so real now. Um, the resolution, the just the way even a person is animated in a game now is amazing. And and yet I also find my kids uh, will sometimes prefer. You mentioned Minecraft. They'll prefer something that looks so simple or stylized, or almost just like a piece of artwork running around. Um, do you is that just a younger age uh, preference, or do you see adults that game? constantly seeking that photo real experience i don't see that being age related at all i mean maybe the younger younger gamers are more forgiving but i know plenty of older gamers that play minecraft or play 8-bit games i i think i think what you see is with a large enough team games can have ultra high fidelity graphics and animation however it comes at a cost because it's it's difficult to do that without hundreds of developers, and that's where you get those hundred million dollar budgets. And sometimes, when you have that many developers, the issues in communication and schedule like end up drowning some of the cre raw creativity that was at the core of game development in the first place. Whereas an indie developer with you know 
five, 10, 30 developers, they, they don't have, like they aren't even trying to hit those quality bars. They don't have the structural problems that the big AAA studios have. And sometimes they can just capture raw fun better than a $300 million project can. That's fascinating. I, I do know that my kids will seek out um, indie games, as you say. Pe- people are working in their basements with a couple other uh, friends and, and creating something that may be simple, but there's something relaxing about that uh, 8-bit look or something very, very simple. Uh, there's something appealing about the indie nature of it, I guess. I guess it's like film where there's like indie indie films made for a million bucks, but you still want to go see the big Avengers movie. You know, it's all out there. Yep, exactly. <laughs> um, and do you, in your perfect world, if you got to make your own game from scratch, what kind of what kind of game would you make if you could do anything? Yeah, honestly, it's something I've been giving a lot of thought to. I've spent the majority of my career in the huge AAA industry, and it's like I often find some of these huge projects outmaneuvered by the small pro- small projects and. And I, I had thought that once I became a lead, then I, you know, it would be terrific and I could make my own world and design everything. And what actually happens is I, I have a bunch of people under me that I need to lead and it's their job to make everything. And I delegate the work and it's not as creative as I thought. So I actually am very interested in the future in smaller projects and smaller teams and pursuing some of that creativity that I talked about that's not hampered by the, the huge amounts of structure. That's, that's interesting. I mean, I think that's the same in film too. I, I, I find a great appeal to a smaller budget sometimes. And if you have a smaller sandbox, I'll use that term again. Um, <laughs> you kind of, it sometimes limits are good and it makes you more creative. Um, but it sounds like it also makes you more hands-on even in, in games too. I think it does. Um, you know, we talked about different uh, styles. Do you, it just occurred to me. I don't know that there's ever been a game like this that is the equivalent of Into the Spider-Verse, where you literally change the look of the game. Like you go from super photo real to 8-bit to something that looks like paint. I, that, that sounds like that would be too expensive for an actual game to, to do that, the programming that it would take. That depends on how it was treated. Like, you could certainly have a game, and I, I actually know some where the gameplay looks in one style and then the cinematics are a completely different style. Um, but if you were going to have different different modes in the game where you have completely different models or, or environments, yeah, that comes at a cost. Those things have to be made. Some, sometimes you can do some smoke and mirrors. You can use what we call shaders to make the same thing look completely different but but th- that has its limits wow um do you do you have an opinion on like uh th- there have been some games obviously there have been movies that become video games but then it goes the other way too there have been some gaming characters that are so popular that we're still trying to figure out how to make them into movies do you think there's any game that has ever crossed over into another medium successfully that that you enjoy i think i think there has been and i think that there continues to be at a trend. I mean, we talked about Fallout. There's a Fallout, I believe, a, a series in production um, at one point, and I don't know where, where this went. There was a Mass Effect movie series planned. Um, I think 
I think this is going to be a common trend that we see in the future. My uh, my boys are excited and yet fearful of the Mario movie. That's uh, I think because you could do anything with it. So who knows what they're going to do with Mario? Um, I, I have hopes. Yeah. Well, they, no, they I under- go ahead. No, I totally understand the fear. It's like you don't know what you get with that package. Do you think there's ever been a desire to like take take the simplicity of Mario or Sonic and then do like <laughs> what you're doing with Dune, like a super fleshy, real Mario and Luigi running through a super real landscape? It seems like that never there's no desire for those characters to do that. I think you might run into what we talked about earlier, where you are changing too much of uh, of what the core audience wants. Like, are the people who play the ultra realistic games are they the same people who enjoy mario if that's if there's enough of those then maybe then maybe the crossover like that could work but chances are the people who enjoy mario are happy with mario the way it is and there isn't the audience for right for like, the, like we, ne- we never want to see we never want to see all the hair follicles on donkey kong we nobody <laughs> Um, and do you find also that when you're working in this real, I'll, I'll keep calling it real world kind of games, like you feel like you're really there on Arrakis, there's there's more of a pressure to get the physics right, get to get the, the gravity right. Uh, you don't want people just superpower leaping over things and stuff. Uh, there, there's more, Do you think there's more of a demand of the people that play those games or like a Call of Duty? You want to feel uh, the realism of it. It all depends on the fiction. Interestingly enough, in Dune, we do have gravity-modifying technology, so super jumps are not out of the picture. However, when it comes when it comes to fidelity, there's there's things you generally choose to focus on, like like we're going to make the character graphics look terrific, or we're going to make, let's say, vehicles terrific, and then sometimes there are other aspects that you completely ignore, and the players will just buy into that fantasy and ignore it with you. And it simplifies the development. How, uh, how influenced are you guys by like developments in VR? Like, are, are, are you working alongside that tech or is there another tech that's like more exciting to you as far as gaming? Like, does that, does VR kind of mess up kind of how you guys work normally? I think the, at, this present time, VR is somewhat orthogonal to what AAA games are doing because it is a completely different interface. Not, not everyone who owns a Xbox or PlayStation has a VR headset because you have to render the world twice, one for each eye. The, like, the performance is different. The fidelity usually is not as good. And there's... There's not many games that support both VR and AAA at the same time. I think this will change. I think in the future, VR will become as common as your know, typical gaming console. And then, yes, it'll it'll probably be a consideration for most projects. Like right now, is VR still kind of like the the new kid in town, and it's kind of the uh, the gimmick that we're all kind of experimenting with? Uh, but it's not. Well, go ahead. I think it was the new new kid five or ten years ago i think it's definitely on the track to success if not domination unfortunately i i myself stay outside of it a little bit because it it makes me nauseous 
<laughs> I mean, it makes a lot of people nauseous. I, I almost think it's like the three, like like how 3D came along for for feature films. We're still trying to decide if 3D films are worth going to. And, and does everybody like them or not like them? Uh, it's like a very specialized experience that not everybody wants. And I feel like that's the same with VR and gaming, that they might just be two different experiences, as you say. It might be. Um, do you, well, what is it that you see that, that the gaming industry at, that you work in as far as designing worlds, moving people through those worlds, what's something that you still see in, as the future of gaming? Is it, is it the speed? Is it the, uh, uh, the render speed? Is it, uh, the ability to create worlds faster or to make the system respond to the viewer, uh, uh, the player faster, or is it more of the actual hardware tech that, that people are going to buy and take home to play them i think it i think it can and will grow in a multitude of directions i think there will be visual fidelity i think i think more and more games the triple a games will look undistinguishable un from film i think there are interfaces like vr i think it's just the beginning like giving the player more and more immersive uh interface into the world there is artificial intelligence like making making games where the characters act more realistic or, or maybe where the, where the game itself is like the dungeon master to your online D&D &D, where it's making up the story for you as you go I think I think this I think it will grow in all these directions wow is the gaming glove coming back that's what I want to know well I don't know, but I do know that I have heard of force feedback gloves, and honestly, I I expect someday there will be interface devices for all the senses. Can't wait for the smell one. That'll make the donkey great. <laughs> Presented in smell-o-vision. That's like right out of the 60s. Uh, like, you know, in Ready Player One, he has like a haptic suit on. Like, he has a suit on that makes you feel things in your chest and your bones. It, it, you really think that we might have that? Yeah, man. Uh, what 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 do you personally, as you game, what what is your favorite way to play a game? There's different gaming chairs. There's different headsets. Uh, do you like to play with other people? Like, what's your ideal gaming situation at home? Well, this is personal taste. I am a yeah. PC gamer. I tend to play with a keyboard and a mouse and a headset, and simple as that. Yeah, like some people have like the, the the seats that shake and they got speakers in the seat and stuff. Like maybe that's a lot of unnecessary whistles and bells to you. Yeah, I mean, I also play with my family a lot, so there's only there's only so much surround sound you can do when you have three people in the same room. Yeah, yeah. What does uh, I I know that your son probably has a lot of opinions now about what you what dad does for a living. Uh, does he affect kind of do you do you ever bring your work home and go What do you think of this? Yeah, I do actually. It's been in recent years, especially since he's expressed an interest in game design himself. I I have sometimes felt stumped at work and came home to run ideas off of him. Like just being able to talk to someone who understands the concept can often be good for working out problems. That's got to be a lot of fun to share that with him. It's awesome. Do you ever, uh, do you guys still, do you do any motion capture and have you been a part of that? Can you point and go, that's me in the game? Uh, yes. Yes and no. 
most of the projects that I've worked on use motion capture for their animation. Again, I do work a lot on AAA high fidelity animated projects. And I don't want to count how many projects ago, but about 10 years ago, I did work closely with uh, an animator who ran a mocap studio in in studio. And while I was never in the suit myself, I was, shall we say, the, the stunt uh, add-in that he was acting off of. And I was directly using his work in the game. So yes, I do have some experience. That's great. Wait, what, what game was that that we might somehow see you in? It, you wouldn't. It was named Prey 2, which never saw the light of day, sadly. Uh, that's that's well, you know, maybe you'll maybe you'll uh, get a chance to uh, appear as uh, somebody in, in on Arrakis. Who knows? Never know. <laughs> uh, so, well, when can we when can we expect? Uh, give me the official name for this Dune game again. Dune Awakening. And when can we expect to see that out in the marketplace? Well, we haven't announced a release date. Oh, like okay. I said, keep your eyes open probably next year for announcements. Wow. And so that that's pretty early. Is that uh, early to put a teaser out there? Or do you like to do it a year ahead and get people excited? It, it depends on the marketing strategy. But I think, yes, usually, usually first teasers are a year or two before a launch. That's that's great. Wow. Um, and it doesn't help. I, I mean, it doesn't hurt. Uh, that uh, the next Dune movie is is in production and coming out soon. Yes, that that's definitely something we're considering. Yeah, there's kind of a Dune Renaissance happening, a Dune a Dunaissance, if you will. Exactly. <laughs> well, um, good luck on your on your books and your world building and your personal life, and also um, I know you have many miles to go on this game. Um, best of luck to you, and, and I'm really looking forward to seeing uh, more uh, teases. Uh, in the year to come and and hope the game is a big success for you thank you Corey. thanks for having me here hey before we get out of here i want to remind you guys that i have a new stand-up comedy special that you can find on drybarcomedy.com just look for my name Corey edwards on the drybar comedy site and if you go for the monthly service you can use my promo code Corey comedy that's c-o-r-y-c-o-m-e-d-y no spaces Corey comedy and you will get a free month of their service and hopefully i'll make you laugh uh end of advertisement well, that's it. That's our show. I want to thank my guest, Jason Richardson, for opening up my mind and telling me a little bit more about the world of gaming um, and about game design. And uh, I don't know. Uh, I'm just going to go back to my Pong. JK, I don't even know how to play Pong. I'm probably pretty bad at that, too. Uh, but but I, I hope that if you are interested in game design and the world of gaming, that uh, he's given you um, some goals to shoot for. He is creating worlds, guys. He's creating worlds. He's going to Arrakis. He's fighting sandworms. He invented a way to conjure a robot. So it's amazing that even when you get into um, even a technical part of a career, that can segue into a very creative part of that same industry. And I find that fascinating. So sometimes if you're interested in an area of the business, whether it's gaming or uh, just writing or television, get in wherever you can. If that's being an assistant, if that's sweeping the floors of a studio, that can lead to the ultimate creative thing you want to do. And I hope that also you can push for uh, one of your creative goals this week. I will see you next time. I'm Corey Edwards. Thanks for stopping by.